Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war is a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation. Until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Mr. War, that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all. God to raise this award that until that day the dream of lasting peace world citizenship rule of international morality will remain in but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never Until the ignoble and unhappy regime that holds our brothers in Angola, in Mozambique, South Africa, subhuman bondage have been toppled, totally destroyed. Well, everywhere is war. 
everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was Bob Marley War Classical, right? Just never gets old. Have you ever had one of those mornings when you wake up and you just go to your Spotify playlist and you just listen to Bob? Just just he just sings the truth. He you know what, if Bob was around and he was running for president, I'd vote for him. Because he just spoke big truths in our world today, and that's what we need now more than ever. There are a lot of mystical things going on, and I think each of these events, circumstances, situations, moments, people, uh, crisis, tragedy, even opportunities, they're all actually telling us to dig deeper into the soul and find our own interior resolves. There's something happening in us, folks. Something is getting stirred You know, when systems and situations are breaking down, laws, rules that used to keep people at bay, and I don't mean that in a negative, because why I believe in principles, law, rules, is that I can't trust all the decisions that I'll make. I mean, heck, I still drive over the speed limit, and I know I shouldn't. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that the laws help us to protect us, And when we start to become lawless, stuff happens. You know, there are reasons why somebody puts down an idea to help us to just, I don't know, elongate the journey, make it a little bit easier, maybe leave something behind for others who are going to come after me. It's a good thing. So we're looking at our souls now at a deeper level. Have we ever been called to look so deeply. And I think the reason why is there's so many of us. There are now over 7 billion of us inhabiting this planet. Same planet. Same planet. A hundred years ago, we were only 1.2 billion people. Same planet. And now there's 7 billion of us. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. A lot. So that means we're going to have to be responsible for ourselves. We're going to have to begin to pay more attention to what we're thinking, and if those thoughts are connected to grace, divinity, love, compassion, empathy, truth, purity, peace. What are you working on right now? What are your thoughts telling you? Where are they guiding you? Are they serving your better angel or not? Keep asking yourself these questions so that you can really restore the soul and take the soul to a much higher level. So I want to tell you all a story A few months ago, a relative that I had not seen for a very long time had come to the house to see me with his um, partner. And his partner was very enamored by the legacy of his grandmother. His grandmother, Enora Brown, passed away in a tragic train accident in Kingston, Jamaica. And while he was here visiting me, he said, you've got to see this video. He showed me this YouTube video with an author called Beverly East who wrote uh, a book called Reaper of Souls, and it was all about the 1957 Kendall train crash in Kingston, Jamaica, in which my grandmother died, which is my mother's mother. To make a long story short, my mother got orphaned at seven with her two sisters, and oh my gosh, the story is just unlimited. But Beverly, I watched Beverly's show, decided to call her, 
to find out more what, what she's doing and who she is and intrigued by the story because I've been starting to look into my mother's journey and her history and, and, you know, why she is who she is and where does she get her strength and her courage and and just all of that stuff, you know, all of that stuff. And Beverly and I connected. Uh, she was in the U.K. and I was in D.C. turns out that Beverly has a home in D.C. that she comes to occasionally. So long story short, I invited her to come and visit with me at the Meditation Museum. She came by the minute we met, we knew each other. And, of course, she and Sister Gita just had a wonderful time. So we looked into the book, and we're in the office, and we're about to have something to eat. And while she's showing me some of the pictures in one of her three or four books that she's authored, she shows me a picture of all the bodies that were on the ground, but there is a picture of just one young child that was standing looking over those bodies. And I said, why does that picture of that little girl remind me of Sister Gita? Sister Gita comes in and almost like immediately identifies the story. Turns out that, you know, this was the only picture that we could actually get as a proof about this horrible experience that Sister Gita went through by having to go to identify her mother's dead body after this crash as she's walking over 200 and something dead bodies. So this brings me to Beverly East. Beverly East comes in, shows me the book. I'm like, oh, my gosh, why is this story now emerging? All because I'm just curious now about the story of the Kendall crash and the lives and the family members that were affected. And Beverly and I, we have now a very sacred and beautiful connection that I must say. And I wanted to bring on air because I know she's also coming up to her 30th year anniversary, which she'll be celebrating at the Jamaican Embassy here in Washington, D.C. in November. So let's have a conversation about a very historical event that took place in a little island in the Caribbean called Jamaica. The book is called Reap of Souls, but we'll talk about other things, too. And let me tell you who we're about to talk to. Beverly East was born in Jamaica, but she was raised in England. She has authored three books, Reaper of the Souls, which is the one I mentioned about. It's about the 1957 Kendall train crash in Jamaica. She's authored Finding Mr. Wright, W-R-I-T-E, and Bat Mitzvah Girl, Memories of a Jamaican Child. Her fourth book, Whose Signature Is It Anyway, will be launched later on this year. In addition to her writing career, Beverly is a certified court-qualified forensic document examiner with 30 years of experience. She's a leading authority on handwriting analysis and examines matters of fraud and money laundering, authenticating documents such as wills and land transfers. Her consultancy services numerous government agencies. She has also contributed to National Geographic TV documentary, Uncover History, Hunting the Anthrax Killer. She's a recipient of the Forerunner Award by the Institute of Caribbean Studies, and the Trailblazer Award from the Flory Roberts for being the only woman of color worldwide practicing in both areas of handwriting analysis. I am so glad that we can do this today. I am so happy to be speaking with you again. You have just this wonderful <laughs> voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. We had a wonderful time today at the house. Yes, we did indeed. I'm glad I mm. left my work. <laughs> Stepped away from the work to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to come. 
Well, thank you for that because sometimes I really do need myself to just step away and also be in my zone, which was really important to me. Bev, you and I share something in common, the Kendall train crash where I lost my grandmother, which I never met, who's related to my mother. And your father lost a whole lot more. For those of us who aren't aware of what we're even talking about, I'd like for you to maybe start us off with, you know, looking at this whole idea of this accident that shifted the life of maybe not only thousands of people, but a whole country. Let's just begin by talking about the genesis of you even thinking of writing this book. The reason why I wrote the book, it's because my father had lost uh, 14 members of his family. Mm at Kendall on the 1st of September, 1957. I wrote the book also because there was nothing out there other than the archival documentation of the newspaper, The Gleaner. There was nothing out there. No other book had been written, and I felt I did not want, not just my family, but the 250 souls that died that night to be Mm -hmm. forgotten, ever and that mm-hmm. there would be something in in the libraries, in the system, now on Amazon, a story that I never want to die. Long after I'm gone, the story still is there. So the book came out on the 50th anniversary of Kendall, and mm-hmm. since that time, and that was 2007, the book came out, and since then... The committee has been um, assembled, and they're about to put up a monument. It's every year the anniversary is actually acknowledged, whereas before, mm-hmm. even when I was researching the book, it was always just a sentence mm-hmm. in the paper. But now it gets a, a full page. I remember one year, the it was the 40th anniversary of Kendall, and I thought, oh, they're going to do a big spread. And then Princess Di died, I think, a few days before, and there was no mention of Kendall. And mm. so I now, I mean, there is actually young journalists who make sure that there is something about Kendall on that day, on the 1st of September. Mm-hmm. And I've been asked to go to schools and talk. So coming back to the research, it took me a long time to write this book. It was emotionally draining. It was I bet it was. It was difficult to get information because most of the people were elderly. They're either extremely old and don't remember or don't want to remember or didn't want to talk. Right. And so I would run back and forth from Jamaica, from London to Jamaica, and then when I moved to America, back and forth. And then one year, I, my husband said, I think you should just go to Jamaica for a year and commit to the book. And that's mm-hmm. where you didn't have to tell me twice. I was packed and ready, child in hand, suitcase in hand, and <laughs> went to Jamaica. And um, I, I felt like even the writing of the book was a journey in itself because mm-hmm. I got to Jamaica and I had nothing in place other than a school for my son. And mm-hmm. I moved into this apartment and it was facing the Bob Marley Museum. You could hear the music from the kitchen. 
And I was living on Hope Road, and the building that I was living in was Carriage House. And I'm living opposite the Bob Marley Museum, and I'm like, it's going to be fine. This is going to mm-hmm. be the journey. I went on TV to get survivors to come forward for me to talk to them. And my landlady saw me on TV, and she provided me with a desk. She says, you need mm-hmm. a proper writing desk. And, you need... and I just got all this love from everybody. Uh, to did. help me write the book. To help, I mean, my son was walking to school. People offered to take him by car, although it wasn't very far walk. I just got so much love when I went to Jamaica and so much support um, when I went to Jamaica. And I would travel all over the island to meet survivors or people who were rescued, you know, somebody who worked in the blood bank. There. Let's just pause there. When you were actually doing the research, did you ever reach to a point wondering why the government didn't even think about the honoring of the people? I mean, why was this not even looked into? Was it just too tragic for people to well, even there visit? Was an, inqui- an inquiry done in England. Mm-hmm. We were still mm-hmm. under British rule in 1957. Okay. So uh-huh. everything came out of the U.K., so there was an inquiry done in the UK, but not to the extent, and I think some people got uh, some monetary contribution, but it was minimum, minimal money. But I think for me, there was this mass grave at Kendall mm-hmm. where the right. bodies, the dismembered bodies, displayed at Kendall. Anybody that wasn't whole, a full body, did not come back to Kingston. So there's this wow. mass grave. In Kendall, yeah. And when I went down to the site, I remember walking barefoot because I didn't know where. There was no marker that I was walking barefoot because I didn't know where they had been buried. And I just wanted my feet to touch the ground and not my shoes. And Hmm. I I just stood there for maybe an hour, two hours. And any time I would go there, people would say, why are you going down there? And I said, because... I will get my answers. I will get my answers. Yeah. So yeah. at one time I got really depressed because the more, you know, they say ignorance is bliss, mm-hmm. the more I heard of how people died, the more I cried for my grandmother and my grandfather, who I didn't know either, like yourself. I didn't know sure. my grandparents. Not on my father's side. I knew my mother's mom. Because I just felt they died slow and in mm-hmm. a lot of pain. Because w- if they had died in a town, they, the rescue operation would have been easier. But they died right. in the middle of nowhere. And the train master, for instance, said, based on what I read, he went down the track because his train was late. There was no mm. emergency to say there's, there's a train crash or something's happened. He, his train hadn't come into the station, so he started to walk down the track to see what had happened. And then he could see the smoke, and then he ran back to the station and called for help. And then everything was coming from Kingston, which at the time, you know, the, we don't have all the technology that we have right. now in 1957. Right. And actually, the Disaster Preparation Mm -hmm. Organization, I can't remember their full title, actually, a couple of years ago, remodeled everything on the computer 
if this was to happen now, how could they save lives? You know, how many lives would have saved if there was better communication? But we're talking yeah. 1957, lack of phones. I mean, someone from the blood bank said there wasn't even enough blood. I bet. I mean, how do you? There was a story you told me about, was it a pastor or a preacher? No, it was a journalist who had gone to... A journalist, Maybe like, yeah, he was driving behind an ambulance, and he just couldn't. He was traumatized because of all the blood that was coming out of the ambulance. All the blood that was dripping out of the ambulance, and he was behind that all the way into Kingston. And it's just everybody's story. When you try to put it together in a book, it's like how much of it... So when I started writing the book, I wrote 100 pages, and I cried through 30 of them, and I'm like, no one's going to pick up this book because I'm going to be traumatizing everybody in the process Mm -hmm. of explaining. So a lot of information that really happened that night in terms of the gore of it is not in the book. I wanted people to continue reading I made my characters so alive and so interesting, I believe, for you to follow the characters and remember the characters in the book. So although the story of what happened that night is all factual, my I use fictitious characters to pull the story along so that you stay with them all the way through the book. And I remember when the book was finished, people would come up to me and say, is there a sequel? And I would say, no, because there was only one train crash. There is no sequel. I would have to recreate <laughs> a whole other set of people. <laughs> but yeah, I just, the way I started the story is not the way the book ended in terms of the process. I decided in the end to choose three people, three main characters. And, and your favorite one was Lucy? No, Lucy is the ghost because, no, Lucy is the ghost in the story because everywhere I went and interviewed people, and sometimes I was interviewing four or five people a day from Uh different, you know, nurses, you know, rescue, firemen, all different people. Somebody would always have a ghost story. And I remember once saying to a friend of mine, God, these ghost stories are really weighing me down. So she says, don't ignore them. It's part of our folklore. Yeah. So then I think a couple of couple of weeks later, I woke up, and I could see this. In, I don't know if I was dreaming it or if I really was awake, but there was this lady all dressed in blue at the bottom of my bed, standing there. And I don't know if I was dreaming it or if she was actually there. I got out of bed. <laughs> and just wrote her into the book, wrote in Lucy. She was all dressed in blue, and she had all this long black hair, and I just got up and created her that night into the story. And she is the ghost that represents all the ghosts, of all the ghost stories that I heard. You know, I love those stories because they kind of remind me of kind of... um, it's so mystical because I can't imagine, Beverly, 250 souls leave their lives. I mean, even when we went to Ground Zero and 9-11, you could mm-hmm. feel the energies. You could feel spirits yeah. were just like, I don't know where to go. When you, yeah. uh, I used to get calls and hear stories from people in Sri Lanka when they had the tsunami. And over mm-hmm. 250,000 lives 
were lost mm. as a result of the mm. tsunami. And I mm. hear them say if they go back into those areas, they can mm-hmm. still hear the souls screaming out. Yes. So I can yeah. only well, that, imagine that, how that impacted you. Well, that is what I felt. First of all, I felt, even when I didn't have answers, I felt my grandparents were speaking to me. In the bedroom that I was living in, I, I, I rented a, a townhouse, and in the townhouse that I was living in, in the bedroom, the only picture, the only images I had in my room was my grandfather and my grandmother, who I'd never met, Mr. and Mrs. East, Peter East and Veronica East. I had their pictures, and so every morning I'd wake up, I would speak to them, and then go down to my office and work work for an hour or two, and then just continue my day and think through, well, what am I going to do here with this? And then I'd have to come back to it. My cousin came to my house once, and I had images of dead people from Kendall all over the wall. Um, the articles in the Gleaner, the faces that were missing, people that mm-hmm. were never found. They just had pictures of them. And I had all these pictures, and I just felt those spirits were guiding me to the story. I, I don't think I ever had writer's block. I think mm-hmm. I was overwhelmed with information. And my cousin came to the house and says, can you just take down some of the pictures, please? Right. You're drowning right. in this stuff. But um, I, I just feel it was when I went to Jamaica, when I made that commitment, to not work for a year. Luckily, um, I was married, and he supported me 100% and sent money every month, and I didn't have to worry about anything else other than getting my son back and forth to school, homework, and then the writing. And I worked for a year, but in the process of working for a year, I was then almost discovered that I could help other people in the work I do as my profession. So Mm -hmm. I started to get calls, you know, because I was asked by the interviewer, what's your day job? What do you do when you're not looking for dead people? And I said, I'm a document examiner. I look at handwriting, and then the calls started to come in. Could you look at this document? Could you look at this document? And so I ended up staying in Jamaica for two years. But it's a, it's a decision that I, I, it's very rare I make decisions that I regret, but going to Jamaica and writing this book, apart from finishing the book, which a lot of people kept saying to me, this is not a story that can be told. It's too, I said, don't tell me what I can't do. It has to be done. And it was not easy. I mean, I, I never cried. Now, when something bad happens, I can't cry because I don't think I have any tear ducts left. <laughs> but I cried a lot when I was writing yeah. the book. I cried not just for my family, but for the people on the outside that never yes. never knew. I mean, when the book came out and I had the launch, people from all over the world were calling me, texting me, could I look up this person's name? Could I look up wow. that person's name? And did I go to this place? And could I look at this thing? And there was just all this. I mean, I was so overwhelmed. I would easily get four or five calls a day or text, email, something, you know, um, about. And I had to respond to every single one. I couldn't 
say I'm busy and can't talk to you now. Yeah, I have to say something because I will agree with you that there is something about this story that um, perhaps you're just even touching just the beginning of it. You know, when we met and we spoke, and even though I started to just think about Sister Gita's journey and the loss of her mother in the in the crash and just how their whole lives changed as a result of them mm-hmm. becoming orphans, um, mm-hmm. ironically, where we ended up living in Florida was an mm-hmm. area called Kendall, Miami. Kendall. Yeah. And I said, I said, Gita, have you even thought at the fact that we were living in Kendall, Miami for almost, what, 15 or or maybe even 20 years? And I never even thought about the fact that, you know, her, my, my grandmother had died in an accident called the Kendall train crash. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if even just all of that, like there are, there are energies that are calling you or just like pay attention, oh. pay attention, because... You're coming up to September 1st, which will will it be the 60th year anniversary? And I was just curious to hear 62nd, 61st, or right. I was curious if you could share with us briefly um, why is it still maybe important to discuss today? In what way can this story um, help us? I think there is still a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, but Mm -hmm. it's been masked with so many other things that happened. There's been hurricanes in Jamaica, and, uh, you know, there is all, if you watch the news, you're just overwhelmed with other events that happen. And so I think what's happened with Kendall, it's it's become more folklore than it's become fact in the sense mm-hmm. that the, the duppy stories, the ghost stories, have saddled along and created its own energy towards it. I just mm. feel the 250 people that weren't buried properly in the mass grave, I think they it's They should be honored. Good. Yes, they should be honored. So the monument will have the names. I mean, when Sister Gita told me her mother's name, I, know I couldn't her get brown. home quick enough. I couldn't get home quick enough to look on my list to make sure that her, that her name was, was there. there. Yes, her well, name was there. Yeah, her name was oh. there. But I'm just wondering if somebody, because I said to the committee, when you put the names up, you also have to leave space for names that we may not have yet. There may be a family Beautiful. that will come forward and say, well, my my daughter's name is not on there, or my aunt's name is not on there. So yeah. the engraving has to be continued. But I do feel that because they weren't put to rest properly, they rise, yes. their spirits rise. And yes. I, I, I do believe that when I went to Jamaica on my journey to write the book, the journey itself, I think, down the line, it won't be the sequel of the book, but I would like to write that journey by itself because mm-hmm. I moved to Jamaica with my son. He was like 12 years old at the time. And my goal was research, write, get back to D.C. And I ended up living in an apartment building called Carriage House, facing the Bob Marley Museum, and I was living on Hope Road. And to me, I was like... This is it. 
I've come with all this hope and optimism. And I didn't know where I was going to begin. And mm-hmm. I was just led all the time by, oh, someone would call me and say, oh, you know, this man down the road, his brother used to work on the trains. You can interview him. Or mm-hmm. somebody would say, oh, this person is a survivor of Kendall. He said you should call. So there was always somebody. And like I told you, my girlfriend, who's a journalist, she worked for the Gleaner. She was always searching for me, you know. Wow, that helps a lot. Yes, and she says, oh, you need to speak to so-and-so, you know. And even now to this day, although the book has been out for a while, and I've been to several schools, I tried to meet with the Minister of Education to see if we could get the book in the schools. And it's not that it was, it was never said no, but no one's ever come back to me with a no or a yes, nothing. Um, they don't know what to do with it. Now, let's think about, I mean, are you thinking about taking it into theaters? Uh, because for me, I, like I feel like the movie. I feel like the movie, uh, I think for me, Reaper of the Souls um, not only covers the importance of our departure being honored with dignity if it was tragic, one, but secondly, the lives that are impacted after a tragic after. accident. Yeah. I always say, yeah. people say, what's the summary? And my summary of my story, how I've written the novel, I see it as triumph over tragedy because I think it is a tremendous loss, an horrific loss, when you lose one person. And when you lose several people, like my father had done, When I look back at his life, he was not abusive, he was not lazy, he didn't drink and not work, he was the opposite. So when I hear people making excuses of why they can't do what they are doing, and I'm thinking, here is my father who lost 40 members of his family, wasn't able to go back to Jamaica to bury them properly, but got up every day, did a full day's work, came home, took care of his family, took care of me, did double shift, came home at 4 o'clock so he could have dinner with me so I wouldn't have dinner on my own because my mother was doing mm-hmm. double shift. So when I look at that that model of my father, I don't like to hear excuses. Oh, well, I broke a nail. Oh, I had a little headache. Or, you know, well, you can't do what you're doing. I'm late because you're late. Keep moving. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I have such, although I didn't know at the time when I was younger that that was my father's pain, yeah. it's how he handled his pain. Yes. Um, and then later when I was talking to my mom, you know, my mom said on the outside he put on this brave face, but at night when he came to bed with me, he would cry. Oh, wow. You know, he would cry, wow. yeah. But you never saw... You never saw that. And my my dad had a cousin. They're Catholic, right? My, fa- my father's family were Catholic. When she found out her daughter died in the train crash, she started smoking. And back then in the 50s, for a Caribbean woman who is a Catholic to be smoking, yeah. it's like unheard of, you know? Yes. And um, I would look at her, because I'd never seen a black woman smoke, and I would just stand there looking at her, not knowing that that was her pain. 
that's how she was dealing with her pain. Um, wow. But I think wow. even to this day, when there's certain things I can't watch, I, certain certain things I can't watch on TV because mm-hmm. I find it too disturbing. And although when the book came out, I couldn't read from the book. You know, when you as an author go out, people want you mm-hmm. to read from the book. I never read from my book for a year because I couldn't read without crying. And so mm-hmm. I would hire an author to read from the book. And then when I was invited to the literary, the Calabash Literary Festival, the organizer said to me, nobody can go up there but you. And that was the first time I ever read from the book, which was a year later. Now I can wow. read from it without yeah. tearing up or, you know, losing my voice <laughs> or whatever. But at first, um, I just Good couldn't do you. it. Yeah, it was still so you. raw. To me, yeah. Well, it's not an easy story, hun, because it's real and it's not it's yes. close to our hearts and um yeah. for me it's the incredible impact it has had on my mother and how I have you know, it's a weird thing and and I think I'm just realizing this as we're having this conversation. I felt a kind of a protection though from my grandmother on my mother's side. I don't know what it is. It's I don't know if it's a protection or if it's sort of like the universe owes something to I don't know what it is. It's sort of like I feel there is something there that's looking out for me. It's got my back, oh, and, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Mm, I think well, it's great. Well, I was in a car accident in my 20s. I was somewhere I shouldn't have been with people I shouldn't have been with, and I ended up <laughs> in a car accident. And I do believe that the spirits pulled me through that. My mm. grandpa, I felt like that wasn't that night when I didn't die because everybody in the car died except me. That night mm. I didn't die. I thought I have to live my life of purpose. Yeah. Because there's a reason why I didn't die that night. Wow. And it wasn't just because, you know, because when I was lying there waiting for the ambulance to come, I thought. When I get home, I'm dead. My mother's going to kill me. Because how do I explain all of this? You snuck out of the house and did that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was that happened to me, I too. I was about, yeah. I think I was with about people 17. I should have been with. <laughs> it's the same and thing I was happened to me. Yeah, I had the was same experience. Age. I go, oh, my gosh, mom's going to yeah. kill me when she rides out. Like, and I would, oh, might have, would have been dead gone. anyway. Yeah, I was like, when I get home. And when I was in the hospital, the nurse looked at me, because my mother knew everybody, and mm-hmm. she was very involved in community activism and work, and and this lady said to me, are you Winnie's daughter? I shouldn't even say oh. this on radio. Let me stop the story right there. <laughs> okay, then. Beautiful. Beautiful. Let's move yeah. on. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, we're coming to a close of our wonderful interview, and I have to ask you before I end the show, you work as a forensic document examiner as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the work and what has been some of your most significant achievements in that area. Okay. My work is I look at handwriting that's forged or try to identify whether the signature is authentic or not. I also look at documents to see if they've been tampered with. There's wills, land transfers, insurance documents. There's endless, endless work. People can never really understand how 
handwriting could be so relevant in today's world of digital technology. But even more so now, with all the new stuff that we have, we can use the equipment that's out there to identify authenticity easier. So some of the bigger cases I've worked on, I've worked on a lot of money laundering cases. Uh, I've murder case last year, which was awful. I've done some work for the media, so like uh, Jean Bonnet Ramsey, when mm -hmm. she died or when she was murdered, I was asked to look at the ransom notes and give my opinion. I didn't testify in court because that's not what I was asked to do. But I was just, because any time the media brings something up, it's why. Why is that letter so important? I mean, last week there was this whole thing about Aretha Franklin's will. There's supposed to be two wills, and uh, uh, is the handwriting hers? So, I mean, although that's not forgery, it's still authenticating whether it is hers or not. I've not been asked to do that, but it was just that now it's in media. Somebody always calls me up and says, have you seen this? Have you seen this? So, um, and I love my work. I really love my mm -hmm. work. I go to court and testify. Sometimes that can be a little nerve-wracking, to say the least. Yeah, but I, I like bet. sitting down and looking at all the documents and putting the pieces together. Because mm. sometimes what the client is telling you is not the story. And I always shut them out and say, let me look at all the documents, because the documents will tell me the story. Mm. You know, wow, sometimes there's a will. And you said mm -hmm. something to me once, and I, I'd never thought about it that way. You said, I am the voice for the dead people. Yeah. And you might not remember that. but most I do. Of, obviously, yes. You said that, and I'd I never do. thought about my work in that way. And yes, I mm -hmm. am. I am the advocate for uh, the people who have died, and somebody else has either signed their name against something. Yes. Or, I mean, the early years, um, when I became an examiner, I, I would just cry over these documents, because it's like, <laughs> could somebody do this? Why have they done yes. this? Why have they shifted this money over here and think they're not going to get caught? <laughs> you know, uh, it's yes. just, uh, the, the only thing I, I don't like to work on, I can honestly say I don't like to work on that. I pass the work on to somebody else. I don't right. like to work on suicide. I don't like to work on suicide notes. Oh, yeah, those are hard. Those I are hard. I, I wouldn't want to either because you're capturing just those final moments. Ugh, yeah, um, but let's the thing move is on. sometimes... <laughs> question is, is it a suicide note or was the person murdered? Oh, is it and for, a note yeah, yes, yes. So that's yes. usually where I come into it, and I don't, I don't like to do that. It's like, well, those oh, are no. rough. yeah. Yeah, well, look, like you're to. coming up to your 30-year anniversary. You're going to be celebrating that at the uh, Jamaican Embassy in Washington, D.C. in November. How does that mm -hmm. feel 30 years later? You're well, I am, girl. I'm like a little child. I'm like a child at her fifth birthday party because <laughs> for years no one really took me seriously. And so to know that I've come through the other end and still going and going and becoming much more busier than I ever thought I would be. And just even recently, I mean, not just work in Jamaica, but I'm getting work from Trinidad and other islands. And I have clients in London, and I have mm -hmm. clients here in D.C. And 
sometimes I think I'll just clear my stack, then I'll have a little time to finish my book, my fourth book, or I'll just uh, do this. And, I, and there's never time. As quick as I finish something, two more documents come in or two more clients come in. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited um, that there will be three receptions, one in London, because that's where it started, the company started in London, and then the Jamaican Embassy here in D.C., and um, may I add, invitation only, and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and then in, I go to Jamaica, and I will be celebrating there with a lot of the clients I have there and the lawyers and just some, I mean, one thing I can honestly say, anywhere I am, I have a mm-hmm. very strong support group. You know, people Good. offer to help, even when when I need help and I don't ask, somebody's always somebody says, well, I can come in and do this for you, and I can do this for you. And the people that work with me, even yes. even though Kendall has nothing to do with my job, I always mm-hmm. tell them at the beginning, it's a part of your responsibility in my company to acknowledge that day. Beautiful. You don't have Beautiful. to tell all the facts. But just like we honor Dr. King and just like we look at Christmas and 1st of September is a day that I would like you to consider. Well, I want to tell you thanks. You know, thanks for bringing this to life because I know for my mother it has helped her. For me, it is definitely giving me more clarity into the journey, the history. You know, how just things happen, the tragedy of life and yet the birthing or the opportunity of something else to to leave some impact in, in, in whatever way and whatever is the but reason for why, all of these things to happen, you know? But that's why I say it's triumph over tragedy because when you look at your mm-hmm. beautiful mom, how she's mm-hmm. come through that as a young girl, yes. you know, no parents, and how she's come through that so beautifully and you know, because she could have had a different life. She's, I'm not saying her yes. life has not been difficult, but yes, I know what you mean. She could have been lost forever. She could have. And yes. I, I look at your mom. I think she's so strong and so mm-hmm. elegant. You know. Yes. And yes. Um, I do. It, I just didn't. Oh, that's why I always have to hold her hand when I see her. <laughs> <laughs> I know you two are buddies. <laughs> I think it's very sweet. Well, look, I am so when you can't glad find her, she's with me. Yeah, oh, good. I'm I'm going to be okay with that. You know, I'm so glad that we got to come on the air. And you know what? I'm telling you this. I am glad that we're doing the show in in honor of not only September 1st, which is in honor of the Kendall train crash. This is very, very timely. But also of the book yes. that you've written, the time, the energy that you've put out there. And maybe what we can do, Beverly, is to hold a moment of absolute peace and silence for each of those souls of the lives lost and the souls that they also left behind. Shall we do that? Sure. That was perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. It means mm-hmm. a lot to me. Same here. All the very best, and thank you for joining us on air. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
That was Beverly East Folks, author and uh, handwriting expert or specialist. And if you want some information on her, go to suspectsignatures.com. And that's again is suspectsignature.com. Beverly East, author of Weeper of the Souls. We are approaching the 61st anniversary of the Kendall train crash in Kingston, Jamaica. And there was a lot of lives, over 250 lives lost. And still, no one has been really able to just really even understand what happened, how it happened. But for now, we send all the souls love and to the lives that it has touched. And we wish everyone safe travels. Take care of yourselves. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here. Love each other the same. I'm going to end today's conversation with message home. May all these souls find their way home, and may we too find our way home. Here's Message Home by Bliss. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or in iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.